If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans. Uh, We will continue our study this morning, uh, not only through this uh, letter that Paul wrote, but specifically through this ninth chapter that we we began a few weeks back. Uh, If you were with us last week, we have been looking at a, a very, what at times can be a difficult doctrine that the scriptures teach, this doctrine of election. And so last week we we went through verses 6 through 13 where Paul sort of lays out what this doctrine is and explains it based on the Old Testament scriptures. And this week, as well as continuing into next week, Paul will, will sort of address some objections that are raised to this doctrine. And so what I want to do, since we're here reading this this one thought, I don't want to get lost in just a few verses. I want to begin at verse 1 and read all the way down through verse 18. Our focus this morning will be on verses 14 through 18, however. So, look with me. Romans 9, beginning in verse 1. This is what Paul writes. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived by conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then... He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Father, without your spirit inspiring Paul, we would not have this book. And without that same spirit... Opening our eyes, we would not understand this book. So, Father, we pray this morning that your spirit would come and open our eyes to see. To see the truth of these of these words that you have given us. Father, we pray that your spirit would come and open our hearts to believe these truths. 
That you would remove callous, that you would remove deadness, that you would remove hardness of heart. And that we would see, that we would hear, and that we would believe your word this morning. May your word go forth and bring water to the deserts of our souls. Bring life to us. All by your will, all by your grace, and all for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen. What do you believe about God? Such a, such a common question, especially these days it seems, that we, we really don't give any thought to this question being asked or even us asking someone else this question. What do you believe about God? But it's an interesting phrasing to that question, isn't it? What do you believe about God? It's it's a subjective question, as if God only exists in the manners and the ways that we believe him to exist. So, for for example, I mean, we hear hear this all the time. For example, we as Christians will say that the Bible says that God will judge and condemn all of those who do not believe in Jesus. And they will spend eternity in hell. And someone will respond to that with, well, I just don't believe that God is like that. I'll be honest, there's there's not really much that is said that that confuses me more than statements like this. Because the, the nature and the identity and the character of God does not change based on an individual's beliefs about who God is or what God does. Belief doesn't have the power to change reality. It never has. I mean, imagine if we if we did this in other areas of life. What if the first grader sitting down to this test, taking a math, te- a math test, learning basic addition and subtraction, sees they're written on the paper two plus two equals. And so he writes down five and the teacher marks it as wrong as she should. And she tells him, no, two plus two, two plus two equals four, not five. And the first grader just looks up at her and says, well, that's not what I believe. It's cute. But it's idiotic. Or what if you have to go in for heart surgery and the doctor is walking you through, the surgeon's walking you through this, this procedure, says we're going to make an incision down your chest, we're going to go in, we're going to do it, we're going to close you up, it'll be, it'll be over in about however many hours. And you look at the doctor and you say, but doctor, I, I hear you, but I think there's one problem. You see, I don't believe that my heart is in my chest, I believe it's in my stomach, and I think the better place to go in would be here. The doctor would look at the nurse next to him and say, after the surgery, let's get him referred to a psychiatrist. It's less cute, but no less idiotic. And yet somehow when we talk about the things of God, we tend to think that his nature and his character are less factual and more up for debate than the location of the organs in your body or the basic functions of math. I'll be gracious here. I think sometimes we say that we believe certain things about God that are wrong, but it's simply because we just don't know. We are growing in our knowledge of God. We are learning about God. And in that process, we have certain ideas and beliefs that are corrected as we mature in our faith and in the knowledge of God. And that's fine. I don't know. We shouldn't judge anyone for that any more than we judge a two-year-old for not knowing proper grammar. We just learn as we get older and as we mature. But, but church, we need to be clear about something right from the bat this morning. God is God. 
He is who he is. And we know who he is because he has revealed himself through the word and through his word made flesh, Jesus. And what we believe to be true about God must come solely from those two sources of revelation, the Bible and Jesus. And nothing more. Because you see, your beliefs about God don't change God. They don't change reality. And, and I, I say all this because here we are in Romans 9. And, and last week, as we said, we began this, this pre- difficult doctrine of election. God's choosing whom he saves and who he doesn't save. And this doctrine is just not easy. In fact, I'd be willing to say that it makes a lot of us uncomfortable. And that's okay. It's okay to be uncomfortable with the teachings of Scripture. You can read the Bible and you can come across passages that make you squirm in your seats. But our job as people of the book is not to skip over those passages that make us uncomfortable. But to actually sit in our discomfort. And discover that God is everything that the Bible says he is and more. So this morning as we continue this this journey through this chapter, I, I want to show you the true character of God as revealed in these sacred writings. But I also want to take time to address the discomfort that can come with the doctrine of election. Because you see, what what I find incredible about this passage and and the passage we'll look at next week is that Paul himself understands why this doctrine makes us uncomfortable. But he doesn't shy away from it. He doesn't change it. He explains it with grace and clarity that we need. So to give you a roadmap of where we're going, uh, here's here's sort of the outline if you like knowing that ahead of time. First, I want to walk you through these five verses and and show you what Paul is saying about God and about his election. And then I want to address why election often sounds like bad news before ultimately showing you why election is good news. So let's dive in on what Paul is saying. If you keep keep your Bibles open so you can see it, because we're going to walk through these verse by verse Since there's only five of them. So first, just to give you a breakdown of how these five verses fit together. Paul presents the problem in verse 14. He gives us a proof in verse 15. Followed by a principle in 16. 17 is another proof and 18 is another principle. So problem, proof, principle, proof, principle. Really simple, easy for for us to follow. So verse 14, here's the problem. And there's an argument being made against election. That election says that if election is true, then God is unjust. Or a better translation, if we look into the Greek, it's adikia, it's it's unrighteous. This verse connects us back to what we finished on last week. And if you go back with to what I read, uh, verses 10, 11, 12, 13. This is what Paul writes. He says, when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, had done nothing, either good or bad. But in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. If you were with us last week, if not, here's here's a reminder. Paul is using Jacob and Esau as this evidence, as this proof that God has always chosen his people. 
That election takes place, according to Ephesians 1, before the foundation of the world. That His choice does not depend on anything that you or I do, whether good or bad. It doesn't depend on our potential to be good or bad. It doesn't depend on who we could or what we could believe or what we could possibly do. But He chooses whom He chooses precisely because He chooses them. Just like our our young ones sat up here a few minutes ago. Why do our parents love us? Well, they love us because they love us. Why does God love us? Because he loves us. Why does God choose us? Because he chooses us. And if you're with me on this, if you're tracking with with what what we've said so far in this study of Romans 9, I think that verse 13 is the really first place where we get stuck. It's the first hang up. It's the first verse that makes us squirm. Jacob, I loved. But Esau, I hated. See, God chose Jacob. He didn't choose Esau. And he did this before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad. But it says, Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. See, the problem that Paul is addressing here is this first objection where we say, that's not fair. You're telling me that God chooses whom he saves before they are born, not on the basis of what they will do or what they will believe. How is that fair? So the objection raised in verse 14 by Paul is, what shall we say then? Is there injustice? Is there unrighteousness on God's part? And Paul gives us his famous emphatic response, by no means. God is not unrighteous, and we know this. God is not unjust, we know this. But how do we reconcile the righteousness of God with what seems to be the unjust and unrighteous practice of election? And so verse 15 gives us another biblical proof of this, from the Old Testament, of God's mercy. Because here, once again, Paul goes back to his Bible. He goes back to the Old Testament to see where this truth is revealed. And you'll notice this isn't based on what Paul believes about God. This isn't based on Paul's doctrines. But it's rather on what God has revealed about himself in his word. And so he takes us back all the way to the book of Exodus in chapter 33, where God tells Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And this is precisely the definition of mercy. It is unearned. It is given graciously to those who need it by one who has it. And you see, if mercy or grace could could be earned in any way, in that moment that it is earned, it ceases to be mercy and grace. Mercy becomes merit in that moment. You've earned it. It is no longer mercy. And as Christians, we talk a lot about God's grace and we talk a lot about God's mercy, as we should. But but I'm afraid that for for as much as we believe that we are saved by grace through faith, we come dangerously close to turning faith into a work that earns grace. Your faith in Christ, believer, is not something you do, but it is something that is given to you. It is given to you by the Spirit of God according to the grace of God. It does not originate in your heart. Faith is something given to you by God so that you may in turn place it back in the one who gave it. And to say that faith is something we must have or something that we must do to be saved, it removes salvation by grace alone and it turns mercy into a merit. 
into a work, into a wage. Salvation becomes something not given to you graciously, but something you earn. And Paul continues, he draws from this reference and this biblical proof in verse 15 to a principle of election regarding God's mercy in verse 16. So then, or it could read, therefore, it depends, salvation depends not on human will, not this desire for it, not just because you want it. It doesn't depend on that or exertion, the ability to carry out that desire. It doesn't depend on how much you want it or how badly you can work for it. No, salvation depends on God who has mercy. So you're still, still with me, still tracking with what Paul is saying. Because here's where it takes an uncomfortable turn. In verse 17, Paul turns to the other side of the coin. God has mercy on whom he has mercy. Yes and amen. But what about everybody else? He said, I'll be honest, I'm completely okay with a doctrine of election that says that God has mercy on whom he has mercy. And he saves those whom he desires to save and everyone else he just leaves and he just leaves alone. He lets them in their sin. They, they are punished and condemned for their sin. I'm good with that. That's not what Paul says, because that's not what the Old Testament says. Paul actually stays in Exodus, but he moves away from Moses and away from Israel to the other main character in that story, Pharaoh. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Here's what Paul is saying based on the Old Testament scripture. This is first what we we know that all authority and all those seated in authority from the very best world leaders to the very worst are placed in those positions of leadership by God. And all the authority they wield, whether they wield it well or wield it poorly, they wield it as God gives it to them. Pharaoh became Pharaoh because God made him Pharaoh. But second, while we, while we don't know the reason that God appoints every leader in world history, we do know the reason that Pharaoh was placed in this position. That God might show his power in Pharaoh and that the name of God might be proclaimed in all the earth. That's the reason that God made Pharaoh Pharaoh. And you'll notice God's power is not shown through Pharaoh as if Pharaoh is a good picture of who God is. But the power of God is seen in Pharaoh's ultimate defeat at God's hands. And so what Exodus is teaching, what Paul is bringing out, is that God raised up Pharaoh to be the king and leader of the most powerful nation on the planet at the time. With the greatest army in all the world, God raised him up to this position so that he could tear him down and crush him. And Paul says in order for God to accomplish this, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And if you go back and you read the Exodus story, maybe maybe one of the themes that you, you see early on is this focus on the heart of Pharaoh. Moses, tell, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, and the plague begin. But, but one of the, the things that you'll notice, and, and maybe go back and read it this week, is who is the one responsible for the hardening of Pharaoh's heart? 
You see, before Moses even returns to Egypt, God tells him from the burning bush, I'm going to harden the heart of Pharaoh. And then as the plague begins, it says that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And then after about the the sixth plague, Pharaoh has had enough and he resigns himself. He says, get out of here. I'm done. Go, Israel. But God reaches into his heart again, hardening it so that Pharaoh changes his mind and doesn't let Israel go. And so more plagues come. And ultimately, all of this is done for two, two reasons, at least two. See, first, if Pharaoh lets Israel go after, let's say, plague six, when he initially says go. Then the tenth plague, and more importantly, the Passover, never happens. The Passover is not only the salvation of Israel in the Old Testament, it also points to the greater Passover lamb, to Jesus. And Passover had to happen. And so God hardens Pharaoh's heart to make sure it did. And then we also see that after Israel leaves, God hardens Pharaoh's heart again. Pharaoh tells Israel, go, get out of here. And and Israel leaves and Pharaoh is content to just say, well, we'll just we'll find something else to do. We're going to stay here in Egypt. Israel's going to go and do whatever they're going to go do. But God wasn't done with Pharaoh. And as Israel is leaving and they reach the banks of the Red Sea, they turn and who do they see coming behind them? But Pharaoh and his chariots and all of his army. Why? Because God reached in and he hardened Pharaoh's heart once more. And he did this so that God would, that, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh would gather his army and that he would pursue this nation of slaves. And that as Israel walked across the Red Sea on dry land, Pharaoh would march his armies into the midst of the waters so that God could crush them. And so that the mightiest army on earth with the greatest world leader on the planet would be destroyed very exclusively and explicitly by the hand of God alone. So that I might show my power in you and so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And it was. And so Paul moves from this biblical proof in 17 to give you the principle of 18. Where Paul states this this final This final thought for us this morning. So then, he says, God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, in all of this, I'm sure by now you you might be feeling that discomfort that comes with this doctrine of election. Because Pharaoh is not the only one that God hardens. He hardens whomever he wills. And this is why election seems like bad news. My eternal destiny, your eternal destiny depends not on whether you accept Jesus, not on whether you pray the sinner's prayer, not on whether you've been baptized or and and are a church member. It does not depend on being born into the right family at the right time. But your eternal destiny, whether eternal life or eternal damnation, Depends entirely on God giving you mercy and nothing else. And those that don't receive this mercy from God are actively hardened by God and then condemned for their harden. 
How is that fair? I have no choice in the matter and it all depends on God. How is that fair? So let's look at why this seems like bad news. Because ultimately, this seems like bad news because you and I bring underlying biases and underlying beliefs that we don't even know we have into the scriptures. You see, first, we believe that in order for us to be fairly judged, in order for God to to rightly judge us for our actions, then we need to be truly free in our wills. If my will is not free, you cannot judge me. I was forced to do it. You see, we want to believe that we are free, that we are autonomous beings, that we have control over our lives and over our little kingdoms. We want to believe that my choices are just that. They are my choices, whether they are good or bad. And we believe, we want to believe that if I make good choices, I'll be rewarded. And if I make bad choices, I'll be punished. That makes sense to us, doesn't it? That's how it should work in our minds. But this doctrine of election undercuts all of that. My choices, your choices, they don't matter. What matters is God's choices. And nothing that we do impacts, changes, or persuades God in his choosing. But you see, the problem with this view, this, this view of, of free will, is that our wills are not free. We touched on this briefly last week, but I want to come back to it again. You and I, as as broken, sinful human beings, do not possess free will any more than a slave has free will. We are slaves to sin, and therefore even our best choices are tainted by this sinfulness. Which means that even if you were to to somehow choose God, to, to choose to believe in Christ for eternal life, you wouldn't be choosing God because he is glorious or valuable or worthy of devoting your entire life to. You would be choosing God because of what God can give you. And it's a selfish choice and therefore it's a simple choice. You're not choosing God because of God. You're choosing God because of you. Because you want things that God gives. See, free will in the sense that that we can choose something, that we can decide something, that we can do something totally separated from any outside influence is a myth. Because you and I will never in this world be freed from the influence of sin. And therefore, our wills and our choices and our actions will always be in some way, shape or form Affected and influenced and bound by that sin. A second reason that election seems like bad news. God's hardening of people and then condemning them for their hard hearts seems unfair. You're making them hard, God. How can you judge them for being hard? How can God condemn me if I don't ever have a choice in the matter? More than that, how can God condemn me if he's the one making my heart hard? But again, we can go back to Pharaoh. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Did God harden his heart or did Pharaoh harden his heart? And the answer to that is yes. God hardened it. Pharaoh hardened it. God hardened it some more. Pharaoh hardened it some more. 
You see, the, the sovereignty of God in hardening the hearts of whomever he wills does not in any way negate the sinfulness and therefore the responsibility of man. We are condemned not because God hardens us. We are condemned because we are sinful. And again, while, while God hardens the hearts of sinners, God is not responsible for the sins of any of them. No one will stand at the gates of hell and cry out, I don't deserve this. Because we do. That's what each and every one of us deserves. You see, the, the reason that election makes us uncomfortable, both of these arguments, that we believe that we have to have free will to be judged fairly, and that, we, that God's condemning us for hardening our hearts is unfair, both of these arguments only work when we're talking about morally neutral people. People who are neither good or bad. If our wills are free and yet salvation depends on God, it would be unrighteous for God to condemn some and save others. But they aren't free. They're sinful. And so God is righteous for condemning sinners. And if God's hardening was responsible for our sin, then that would be an unrighteous condemnation. But God's hardening does not cause spiritual insensitivity to the things of God. But God's hardening simply maintains the state of sin that already characterizes us. You see, ultimately, election only seems like bad news when we view ourselves to be better than we truly are. More capable than we truly are. More loving, more gracious, more accepting, more godly than we truly are. But election is not bad news. It may seem like it, but it's not. Let me, let me show you now why election is, in fact, good news. There's three, three reasons that I, I think from this passage that we, we see why election is a good thing. First, election reveals the glory of God. Election reveals the glory of God. If you go back to verse 15, where Paul references these, these words to Moses from God, this is quoted from Exodus 33. And if you go back and you look at Exodus 33 and you see the context around this verse, you will come to understand an incredible truth about election. See, in that passage, Israel has just done the, the whole incident with the golden calf. Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law from God. While he's there, the people of Israel down say to, to Aaron, we need a God to worship. Make us a God. And Aaron, as he tells Moses later, we melted down the gold and this beast just sort of jumped out of the fire. And there it was. And, and so Moses and, and God, more so, are righteously angry about it. You may remember, remember Moses breaking the, the tablets and having to be rewritten. But God, more than that, because the sin ultimately was against him and not Moses, tells Moses, stand back. I'm wiping them out. We're starting over. And I'm going to leave you. I'm going to spare you, Moses. But I'm erasing this people from history. And we're just going to start over with you. And you would almost expect Moses in that position. They sound good. I didn't like them anyway. But he doesn't. He's, he intercedes on behalf of Israel and says, God, you've promised this people. You've been with them. You've saved them. And if you do this, the entire world, instead of proclaiming your grace and your power and your might and saving this people, 
They're going to think you weak and powerless because you led this people out into the wilderness to die. Don't do this. Moses prays for God to relent and God does. He relents. And then Moses in this in this passage in Exodus 33 comes to God and says, God, will you show yourself to me? Will you let me see you? And more specifically, Moses says, you can go and read it. The the request is, show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. That's the context of this verse is that Paul quotes here in Romans 9. You see, Moses. Moses asked to see God, but he asked specifically, he says, I want to see your glory. And what we have to understand is that the glory of God is his holiness made manifest. And so what Moses is asking in Exodus 33, he's asking to see the holiness of God on display. He's saying, I want to see what makes you holy, God. I want to see what makes you totally separated from all the rest of creation. I want to see what makes you God. Show that to me. And God responds, what makes me God is my ability and my desire to show mercy on whomever I will and to show grace to whomever I will. Do you you see this? God's election is a revelation of his glory. It is a revelation of who he is. And as such, we should not only study election, we should not only seek to grasp the sometimes difficult truth, but this should be something we celebrate. Because this is how God has revealed himself to us. Through this act of election. This should be something we are thankful that God has revealed to us who he truly is. Because election reveals his glory. Second reason why election is good news. Election preserves grace. Election preserves grace. See, the doctrine, uh, we we touched on this earlier. I I won't spend too much time here. But, But Calvin, John Calvin said it this way. He said, where there is mutual cooperation, excuse me, let me start that over. Where there is mutual cooperation, there will also be reciprocal praise. Where there is mutual cooperation, there will also be reciprocal praise. So what, what Calvin is saying in this quote is that if two individuals work together for a project to accomplish a task, then when that task is accomplished, both individuals, regardless of how much they contributed... Both individuals deserve credit and praise for the task getting done. Tracking with this. When we apply this to salvation and to eternity. When you stand on the precipice of eternity. When you finally reach the golden shores of the new earth. When you are standing feet on the ground in the kingdom of God. Who deserves the praise for your presence there? Will you receive even a portion of that praise? 
Because I don't believe so, and I don't think you do either. Are we really willing to say that the only thing separating you from your non-Christian friends and family members and co-workers, the only thing separating us from a non-Christian is that I made the right choice and they made the wrong one? Is the only thing separating you from an eternity in hell the fact that you prayed a prayer? Or is it because God showed you grace? You see, when we say that God chose us as his people, we are praising his gracious election. Because election preserves grace. If it was not grace, if we contribute to our salvation in any way, shape or form, we deserve at least a portion of the praise. But all throughout the New Testament and all throughout the the Bibles, you hear it over and over and over again. Let the one who boasts, boast not in himself, not in his ability to pray, not in his, his ability to believe. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Because election preserves grace and gives praise where it is due. Lastly, election provides assurance. Election provides assurance. We spent, we spent several months in Romans 8. And, and Romans 8, if you remember, Romans 8 is a chapter of assurance. One after another where Paul is just sort of rapid fire hitting them. One, one, I mean, assurance of, of no condemnation, assurance of salvation, assurance of life, assurance of belonging, assurance of, of hope, assurance of help, assurance of love. I mean, over and over and over again. Romans 8 is one assurance after another for believers. But here's the truth of Romans 9. If there is no election, there is no assurance. If God does not choose to save you, then you cannot be guaranteed that you will be saved. But you see, as believers, we have the assurance that all things work together for the good, who, for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. We have the assurance that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have the assurance that the Spirit of God helps us in our weakness when we don't know how to pray as we ought. For He prays with groanings too deep for words. We have the assurance of life and the assurance of adoption and the assurance of purpose. We have the assurance that nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not because we love him. Not because we believe in him. Not because we try to obey him. These things don't provide assurance because they are based on me. But the reason that you and I have these assurances, guaranteed, verifiable promises that will never be broken. Is because God chose to show us the riches of his mercy. And there is no greater promise, no greater assurance than that God chose you. Election reveals the glory of God. Election preserves grace and election provides assurance. How could this doctrine be anything but good news? Next week, as we continue through this, this passage, we'll look at this second objection. How then does God find fault? How can he condemn us for our sin if it's all dependent on his grace? 
But let me, as we, as we wrap up here, a lot, a lot can be made about election, especially within the church. And such one, one big question that seems to come up every time this, this doctrine comes up is, well, how can I know that I've been chosen? How can I know that God has chosen me? And the question is actually really quite simple. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe the gospel? Do you have faith in the promises of God? If yes, then that's the guaranteed proof that God has chosen you. That's how we know, because we have faith. And if you're here this morning and, and, and you don't have those things, then the reality is, is that not yet, maybe, maybe it's not that God has not chosen you. Maybe it is that God has hardened you for a, a time. But God might be drawing you in this, even this morning. He might be pulling you to himself, opening your eyes to see these truths about who he is and what he's done. And if that's you, then all you need to do is believe and rest in the fact that the reason you feel this way, the reason your eyes are being opened is not because you finally understand it, but it's because God is showing you his grace even right now. Christian, God chose you. And he chose you not because there was anything good in you, not because there was potential in you, but he chose you because he loves you. He chose you because he chose you. He chose you because he reveals his glory by having mercy on whomever he wills. It's good news. Because if God did not choose me, I certainly never would have chosen him. Pray with me. God, thank you for the good news of your word. Help us to understand it and to celebrate this, this doctrine. Because it is, it is good and it is true. We need it. We need to understand that you have chosen us. And that it is by grace that you have chosen us. And it is mercy that you have shown us. And it is not something that we can earn. But we're thankful for it. And we praise you for it. We boast in you for it. And so, Father, continue to teach us, continue to pour into your people, continue to open our eyes and let us glimpse wondrous things out of your word. We pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.